My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. Okay, so one of the things that I most quote um, on Twitter and Instagram and all these other places are quotes about the shadow. Um, and I, it's interesting, the shadow is, uh, aside from love and uh, feminine and masculine, well, shadow probably gets more reaction than, than anything else, right? So uh, what do we mean by the shadow? I guess that's, let's start with that. What, what, what is the shadow? I guess I would say it's the, in a way, it's the opposite of what we present to people in the public. It's... <clears throat> It's really, I, I would say there's, it's, it's our dark side. It's what we tend to uh, hide away. It's what maybe we were encouraged to hide away from the time that we were children. Uh, parts of our personality, aspects of ourselves, things that maybe we felt shame about or uh, things that, you know, we've been conditioned by our families, by society, tuck away and uh, not display. So let's give it, let's give people some examples. Anger, generally, in most families, unless you're, you know, <laughs> unless you come from a Spanish family like I do, and then like, everybody's sort of emoting all the time. But in general, I think anger is one thing that people would like to keep mm -hmm. in the box, right? You don't let it out. Robert Bly, who I love, the poet, the American poet, who also wrote a great book on the shadow, um, called uh, a little book on the, on the human shadow. He talks about, he uses the metaphor of a bag, a long bag we drag behind us. And he talks about in his own family, that's one of the things you could not express. He, he calls himself, he and his brother were the nice Bly boys. Mm. And if you're the nice Bly boys, then you have to behave in a certain way. And if you don't, mm. there will be repercussions. So you stuff that in the bag. But everybody's angry, right? So it's illogical mm -hmm. to say to people, don't feel anger because then it goes into the body and it does some major damage. Can you think of other things? Like what other things end up in that bag? Like general things that most people, and I think it does also depend on gender here. Sometimes uh, mm -hmm. women are expected or young girls are expected and young boys, although thankfully that is changing. But there are things that I think are still very much um, operating on that level. So uh, some other ideas, some other things that get put in the bag. Forms of grief, and that can be grief on any type of level. So, okay, so grief. Uh, so, in other words, you can't you can't express what disappointment. What what kind of grief are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about uh, you know, yes, disappointment, or uh, especially for men. Mm -hmm. I, and I think this is one of the reasons. So, so it's interesting you brought up anger because I think <clears throat> in our society it's more acceptable for men to express their feelings in anger gotcha. versus, you know, uh, sadness or uh, being melancholy or, mm -hmm. you know, anger is the way that I think men are kind of in a way conditioned to express whatever that is. And, and so they're not really hitting on the real emotion when they do express anger. Mm. That is a very good point. I was actually thinking of the, you said melancholy. I think one of the things that Jungians always point out 
and I completely agree, is that you're not allowed to be depressed. You're not allowed to be sad in the sense of maybe there are days when you just don't feel like engaging with the world. But there is something, you know, especially I have to say, North American culture is, and I'd say probably the United States more than my own country, is very much about happy culture, you know, expressive culture. Mm -hmm. No matter what, you've got to keep up a good face. And you just sometimes don't feel like it's so the very, yeah, melancholia, which is a very, it's, it's everybody experiences it goes into that bag. And you're right, it gets expressed in other ways. I think another big thing is a face of, uh, you know, selflessness. I think Mm. selflessness, um, portraying selflessness. You think think that that... goes into the bag? Interesting. Okay, now we're we're talking about- No, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm saying that is what is not in the bag. I'm saying selflessness. So- particularly in more religious settings mm-hmm. you know this i guess you could say false humility um okay. or is mm-hmm. it in when underneath all that right i think there's another monster breeding underneath all that and that is what what's the monster breeding uh, unlived unlived life oh well that's true yes yes the unlived life is probably at the heart of this whole thing because you're not allowed to express that right right okay yeah right uh, going back to the to the humility and whatever, I mean, everybody likes to, I think you're rewarded if you show humility, mm-hmm. uh, whereas if you're proud and bashful. Now, this gets into some really interesting and thorny areas. Proud people and, and people, not bashful, because bashful is the opposite. There is some benefit to, to, to having a lot of self-confidence, which is often interpreted in a negative way, isn't it? If you're too self-confident, then, you know, it's it's looked down on that you're do you know what what am i trying to say jay help well, me well arrogance <laughs> arrogance yes that's the word i was looking for arrogance so but actually arrogance allows you to do things that most people wouldn't do it'll, it'll allow you to take risks right that mm-hmm. maybe you will not do so is this a fine line somewhere where actually arrogance at because all of these qualities have a shadow side in themselves any positive right right i always um I always see pride and shame as, you know, flip sides of the coin that often pride is, uh, you know, a cover for shame. I'm not saying that that's always the case, but right. that, that is how it, like someone that is so pride, prideful uh, or so proud, I guess, that there is some shame in the shadow. Right. Oh, that yeah, that I could believe. But but let's let's like distill it. So what I'm talking about is not maybe pride. I'm talking maybe the the confidence. Maybe is what I'm speaking about, okay. which sometimes gets misinterpreted. Though a very confident as, person, people say, oh, arrogance. Should, yeah, arrogance, right? But actually, you do need confidence to take on the world. It's certainly, not, yeah, certainly. So, so some of these qualities, by and and of course, one way we haven't talked about it. One way, if you want to interpret what your shadow uh, looks like, is just see who really bugs the hell out of you, right? I mean, that's just one way mm-hmm. to immediately know, uh, which of mm-hmm. course then brings up the other thorny because some people just, somebody asked this and I thought this is, so some people are just really, really hard to deal with, right? So what is uh, the, and so I, I'd like to, I think it was Wong France, but it could have been Jung himself who said that it, in every projection, there is both a subjective and an objective part. In other words, for that person to have hold that projection, there must be something about them that is already there's a hook. <laughs> there's a hook, right? And so, yeah. so there's a bit of that. But then, you know, um, some people are really bothered. I, I've noticed in watching that some people are really, really bothered by confident people. And I, 
uh, often now obviously it was something the family thought well don't be proud don't behave like that but I also see that they don't know how to take life on very well mm-hmm. um, I would say Americans I mean you can't make these grand things but there is an American uh, extroversion that does not mm-hmm. uh, you can't see in I don't think in Swedish people I mean there is something to the way that we what is accepted within a culture because a shadow is not only created by your family it's created also right. by by, and I'm sure, I don't know, because I don't live in the States, but I'm sure where you're living relative to New York, there's got to be like, there has to be so many differences even within, especially a country as large as the United States. But then it makes it really interesting because um, Spanish people, and I know Europeans watch a lot of American film and they're fascinated by Americans, right? And part of the fascination is a character that they don't, that they're not like that. So they're watching something because, you know, more likely people will watch American films and Americans will watch European film. Let's be honest. Right. Um, And I just, I wonder if when it, when these qualities are, you're taking on your national characteristics, which you do, there's no way that you cannot. What happens to the person who is a rural introvert in a country where what is rewarded is extroversion, um, you know, whether it's at work or, I mean, it has to be painful. That's the only way. I mean, you, you want to go to Sweden, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm speaking as an introvert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it is frustrating because as an introvert, my experience is often feeling like not being seen or not being valued in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because yes, extroversion is rewarded. And I would say in some sense introversion is kind of pathologized actually in some ways like there's something wrong there's something wrong with you right um yeah and i don't mean that as a victim i'm I'm not saying it in that sense it's just that you understand what your culture is and in what it values and sometimes you don't always feel like there's a place for you yeah no no i mean i can see that like have you, you think about introverted cultures uh, often um, you think of Eastern cultures, which are much more meditative and they value the, the, the things they value are much more about uh, the, the introverted path, like the spiritual path or whatever. And then you think of what, 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 do, what do Americans classically sell abroad? Action films, right? Big, people are taking action all the time. And you can say, well, these are stereotypes, but they actually impact the person. I think if you live in a culture where rest and uh, retreat is not only encouraged, but actually seeing like something that has to be part of the culture and that everybody does, then yeah, you feel a little bit more like there's a place for you. I can totally get it. And and by the way, I do think that I've seen this extroverted just by being around my kids who are both extroverted, one more than the other. You get a lot more breaks when you're extroverted in this culture, right? People will invite you to places more. They'll offer you more better jobs because you can relate on a way that everybody feels comfortable, right? Whereas mm-hmm. I think the introverted makes people feel uncomfortable <laughs> because, well, because you're not, you're not doing what I'm doing right now. I'm, and well, I sort of mixed, but you're not putting, yeah, right. uh, you're not putting out massive amounts of energy into the world, right? You're sort of, right. you're, you're, you're uh, retreating. You're, you, yes, you're, you're, you're small. Uh, really that's interesting you would say that word I would say small I think it's uh you know I'm going to tell you like classic as I've gotten older I've definitely gotten more introverted to the point that I didn't want to be with people sometimes but when I was yeah younger I definitely felt more of an extrovert and what I what I what I felt around really supremely introverted people 
is that you get the feeling that you can't figure them out. So that makes you feel not now because I'm, you know, but at the time I was like, oh my God, I can't figure this. And you sort of start assuming they're thinking things that they're not thinking. And I think that's where the danger comes, right? With an extroverted person, they're going to tell you what they think. So, hey, there you are. But a more introverted, I think you're on, you're in a little bit shake your ground because you have no idea what's going on. I had someone tell me when, you know, when I was in high school that they thought I was stuck up. <laughs> yes well that's the other thing you think yeah yeah that's the yes. other thing that yes yeah because yes. you're not talking and, but you're not talking and problems. i'm like i'm compl- i'm incredibly insecure <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how you could see stuck up but yeah you know. yeah but that's the interpretation and then of course then mm-hmm. there's another barrier put in so we've got anger we've got the extroversion introverted introversion problem which i think is a really big one i really think that's a massive one um what other things going what about okay so the other thing that i think does go in, in a family bag um, or even it's tied to culture as well as professions, right? But what professions do parents push their kids to, toward? And what does that mean for the kid who is not of that type, but decides, well, I better do what the, what the parents expect of me? First of all, I think that parents are going to be uh, more likely to push their, their kids into something that is, you know, there's a sense of stability there. Right. You know, so I don't, we've talked about this a little bit before. I don't think any parent wants their child necessarily to do something like, you know, art related or, mm-hmm. or in, be in a creative field uh, because it's kind of dangerous or scary and, yeah. and there's not a whole lot of stability in it. So right. I, I can understand that. So, you know, something very conventional, um, something that you know, um, I don't know. I, I, you can't get any more conventional than a banker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be a banker, a lawyer, you know, all the, the professions that guarantee you a way to, to secure a living. Um, it's interesting. I think that can't change until the culture starts valuing, um, work, the artistic side a little bit more. And it just doesn't, it, it doesn't. I mean, I, I think of writers cause I, obviously that's where I'm coming from. And the amount of effort that goes into writing anything and how badly rewarded it is commercially, right? I can see that we've structured a society where you even see this in universities, what's valued, the STEM programs, right? Because those lead to actual work. And it's just, and people stop having philosophical discussions or understanding how to think critically because it's not valued. So we've got a real problem. And I, I don't I don't know how you bring it back. I don't know. I mean, you can't go back to Renaissance Florence, right? We can't go back to right. that, unfortunately, it'd be lovely. And so what do you do? And so a person trying to figure out, you know, using the the metaphor that Robert Bly, that big bag, like, how do you even start? Okay, okay, so how do you start? Okay, so you know you've got everything. You know you're kind of resentful of artists because you really want to be an artist, but you can kind of feel, oh, they're wasting wasting society's time. But really, I've met those people that are saying that, but really would love to be able to do that kind of job, right? Uh, Or that kind of anything, but but they don't feel the confidence. 
So how do you start? Well, what do you do? Or or don't you, or is it done externally? Because I think I've seen both, right? So what's your experience of this? What pushes someone to the brink, as I call, where they say, okay, no more? What kind of event? Well, of course, you know, I always refer to crises. Yeah, well, of um, course, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that is the, the uh, classic way. I think, and and I know these things can happen at any point in life. Uh, you know, the classic what we think of of a crisis is midlife. Yeah, yeah. But do you want and, to explain why though midlife? Because I think the Jungians make a lot of midlife, and I think there is a good reason. And it's in the the essay by Jung about the stages of life, right? The metaphor of that sun. There is a good reason why you would at midlife be feeling that way. What is it? <laughs> because the the first half of life is about strengthening the, strengthening the ego, right. um, strengthening your place in life so that in the second half of life, you're able to undergo these, these tricky transitions, I would say. Right. You have the strength to go through them because it does take ego strength to be able to confront the shadow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In fact, they, don't they say, and I think this is said in a lot of spiritual traditions, that you can't really do this second half of life work, which is really important but difficult unless you have a strong ego because you won't survive. Everything will crumble. You have to have a strong center enough that you can then go ahead and start dissembling or taking things apart, right? Um, so no, absolutely. But okay, so do you get up and you do you get up one day and go, I'm 40. Oh, so time time to change. What, I mean, what happens? Not people don't sitting around going, oh, midlife. Although the cliche is there, I know, but um... I think people authentically become exhausted in the life that they're living. No, okay. Um, I I think that they feel like the life they're living has run its course, and they can't imagine themselves continuing at the pace that they're going. Or, and um, I do think that. So there, there's there's two things here. If a person has an idea of what their what their next move is, then it becomes a test of courage. It becomes uh, surrender. <laughs> but the trickier part is people get there sometimes without having any idea of what's inside them, and mm-hmm. that's a little bit trickier because that's things... for the depression, right? You would say that that's when yeah. you tumble often into a full depression. And you don't know why, because there's right. no outward marker. Like there's no maybe divorce, no, you weren't fired, but somehow you wake up one day and everything is wrong or something isn't functioning anymore. And those, I think, are the scariest depressions because you can't link it to an event. And so it's an inner urging. But we're living in a world where nobody really talks about the inner world anyway. So you're really stuck. Um and I think it's more difficult in our culture. I think if you look at, I don't know whatever term to use for this. I can I could say um, maybe tribal cultures, more indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they do have markers for these things because they have ritual and yeah. um, they live their lives. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking very generally. Uh, I'm using generalizations here, but that's kind of built into the structure. Yeah. These, these changes we go through lives, uh, yeah. that's part of their community organization right, you know right. yeah and we don't we really don't as you know in in, a, in western society really have have that i i don't feel like we do 
Do you think, I've never looked at this closely, so I, so I don't know, do you think that there is any culture that has a midlife transition? Because I think of, you know, the, in Catholicism, you have, you know, you, you have the confirmation, you have the baptism, the confirmation, you have first communion, um, all of these markers that go along the way. But I don't think I've ever heard of anybody having a midlife mark, no, and I think it's important. But, you know, what what some cultures have is markers for manhood, womanhood. But that's um, young. But that's young, right? That's 17, it, it, 18. It, it, it's trans it, it, transitioning in adolescence. It's not midlife. No, no. I can't think of any. I, no. I've I, never I encountered really... one. It's interesting. Even, even when we talked about, at some point, we talked about uh, fairy tales and how Alan Shannon collected a whole bunch of fairy tales. And most of them were uh, about the transition into, from adolescent, I mean, from adolescent, well, into adolescence, right? Because that's a major transition. Yes. And then the other one about death. But midlife, you only found a collection of tales that actually address the midlife journey. So I think it's interesting that there's this moment in, in time when the sun starts to descend and you're invited to do the real journey, which is I take myself back. Nobody has a clue. And this is maybe why Jung is so powerful, because he actually mm -hmm. not only had a clue, he was telling you, this is what you must do. So I wonder if that's uh, that's uh... yeah, and and so that brings us back to the shadow, which is, you know, for the ego to to develop. I, I think I, I don't know this 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 can kind of be tricky here saying this because in a way I feel like I'm contradicting myself, okay. but you know I was talking about our our family. We the shadow is what we repress within ourselves. It's what mm -hmm. we hide away. And it's almost as if our development requires us to do that uh, because, you know, the, yes, we can say that society or our family or our parents do that to us, but it's also kind of written in this whole journey until we get to midlife like it's almost like it's necessary i yeah, don't know yeah. no 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 you told me i don't think you're at all contradicting yourself because you mentioned earlier that you need to develop an ego and you cannot develop an ego in an unsafe space right you do need um you do need to feel supported by family and that sometimes means you follow the rules of the family even though they contradict who you are and i, I think and, and the society as well you want to find a if the first half of life is finding a space within society you're going to have to follow some of the rules. And this is the contradiction. I keep thinking of Jung's one and two personalities, right? That he was always aware there was a number two personality. Uh, he was the one that played the game, the one that went to school, the one that had parents, which were problematic, et cetera, uh, who got married. And then the number two personality was always this larger personality he could sense, right? I think the difference is he had that intuitive, I think at 10, he, like, I think it's the, he already tuned into that. Most people don't have that kind of connection already. They're not aware that there might be another larger personality that they will have to respond to. You see this, like I have an uncle who's an artist and a, uh, um, was an art teacher and uh, we have conversations quite often. And he, uh, we were talking one day about the development of an artist and how it's necessary for an artist to the first part of their lives to focus on the craft and then there's once they get to a certain part in their career they kind of unlearn what they've learned in some ways right and right. and and so the really the the really imaginative stuff is allowed to come through later right. in life whereas the right. first part of life is structure and yeah you yeah, know. yeah 
It's funny, I remember going to an art uh, exhibit from early Picassos in Washington, where they showed just what a great painter he was, I mean, in a technical way, and in a representational way, not in what he became after. But as you said, he first developed the skills to understand, and then there's the old saying that he could break the rules that were there because he understood the rules. That's with writing, is with practically anything. And so actually, it's a great way to apply it to life as well. First, you, you learn the rules of the game, you, you learn how to do that, and then you break away. Most people don't break away. I think that's what happens. You, what mostly happens is when you have your crisis, the inner call to change, you recreate the first half of life in a different way, either in a mm -hmm. different job or with a different partner or something. You're doing a literalized or an external representation of what's being asked of you internally. Now, I remember the story that Jung, I think Jung, one of his, uh, he had a patient who was uh, some sort of businessman and he got to visit to the midlife uh, point and he, and he started having really, really bad dreams um, involving, I don't know what it was. I can't remember the actual motif, but he would wake up um, in, in and I think it might've involved a horse because Jung's prescription for him is he said, you are, you've lost total contact with your instinctual self. And so he loved horses. He said, you must spend every weekend going to to be with the horses and then you could get back into the other world and be part of that world during the week and so sure enough the man started doing this and the the nightmares disappeared but as all businessmen he eventually forgot and he was busy and he stopped and then the the uh, nightmares came back so it's a way can you hold two different realities and i think for artists you have that contact to the inner world so that's actually not a hard thing to do you can be in polite society as they say and have a perfectly good time but then you know that there's a part of you that belongs to no one and you can retreat to that space and you can forget everybody and that's kind of a gift in its own i mean not gift because you're gifted but that it's great that you can do that but a lot of people don't have that sense. So I love the horses idea because there's a way you can you can have that space for yourself and it'll be different for everybody. You know, I can even see people with certain pastimes like, uh, you know, you'll see very active people in, in, in their life take on things like, uh, like uh, become very passionate about something like fishing. Yeah, yeah. And fishing is actually kind of the opposite attitude approach to life and that it's very passive. Um, you're waiting and it also teaches you. So you may not be an artist. I would say golf is another one. Although, yeah. you know, um, these are crafts that uh, teach us about ourselves. They can be. Mm -hmm. And there is another side of, so I think you often see people that that leave these very active lives or or have an attitude that have maybe a pastime that pulls up that other part of their personality and helps them integrate it in one way in an, right. in, in some way right the contemplative uh as, but although i often think this is an aside on golf i don't know much about golf but it seems to me that people can get very competitive on on a, on a in golf as well, yeah, which means you sure just can. you're taking the competition that you're doing in business, and then you're taking it out. I mean, that's as a cliche, but but I wonder. I mean, I think okay, we're taking the idea of taking shadow qualities out of the bag. Then a more isn't it a little bit more difficult? In other words, um, so let's say I have been the good girl all my life, and I've always followed the rules, and I've always been nice, and you know that that kind of person that tries to please because sure. women are constantly being forced into this idea of the disease to please right and then at midlife isn't it the time to say no like no i am not doing that anymore 
um, this is not happening. In, in the sense that when you're doing that, you are not really attending to your own inner needs. You're mm -hmm. responsive all the time, right? So I think this also explains why sometimes at midlife or at some point, the feminine, if you've embodied one side of those two, you've got to take the other. And that often does include the shadow sides, mm -hmm. um, you know? And that can be difficult. Like you're asking for uh, a, a form of behavior that, you know, you're not used to doing. Well, you're, you're, being, you're being asked to more than likely take on the energy of something that you've demonized yourself. Yeah, well, that's that's the problem right there. Exactly. So how do you, okay, so one thing I think is really important, let's say you want to take your anger back. That doesn't mean you suddenly go out into the streets and start screaming at everybody. It is an, an acknowledgement that that's there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what happens with, with shadow qualities is that is where you are likely to go unconscious and see it in everybody else, but you will go unconscious whenever. So it's, I think the way I'm understanding this is it's a way of taking it back to yourself. Like, you know, it, it becomes something that you, but you don't necessarily punish someone with your anger or your whatever. You're more saying, oh, okay, I can feel, I can feel this anger and I'm not going to shut it down. I'm not going to try to put on the nice face. Maybe you say I need some space here because I have to work through this. But I, I think it's really important not to say you take the shadow qualities and, and you suddenly become this, this ferocious beast when you've been kind. Or right. So a balanced way of, of, if we're using anger here, a balanced way of integrating it, because if we're going on the street and yelling at everyone, then we're shadow possessed. This yeah. part of our, you know what I mean? We're going into yeah, the course. opposite attitude of what we yeah. typically take to life. And we see people do this all the time. You know, yeah. I know that, you know, I know when I was younger, uh, growing up, uh, you know, even in college and I was pretty passive. I know that may shock you, uh, <laughs> but, but I was pretty passive. And, um, so I went through these periods where I would experiment, you know, well, I'm going to no more of this. I'm going to, and, and so I would end up going too far. I would become aggressive in some ways. And, and it's like, oh no, that wasn't right. So if you take anger, the way that you would integrate anger appropriately, I would say in a healthy way or in a way that doesn't do damage to others is you use that in, because what is that? That is an energy. And you use that energy to fuel your approach to life. So maybe use that anger to make you set boundaries where you haven't been setting boundaries before. So you use that energy. You, you could, that energy has a purpose. And all this energy, it's about interpreting that energy and putting it to the use it's intended for, I think. Because I think often anger is misguided. Right. It's, you know, in, in counseling, it's considered a secondary emotion. Right. That doesn't mean it's wrong or we shouldn't feel anger, but there's something that we can do with it. So, okay, I'm going to use that to put the boundary here. I'm going to use it to be um, doing something that I would rather be doing for myself instead of, you know, uh, that I need to be doing for myself. So you use it to fuel more assertion. Right. then you would yeah it's um, the other side of uh it's assertion. it is a an aspect of assertion it's just assertion gone maybe to an extreme so you need it to be able to say this is me and that's you and i will put a boundary as you say it's just right. when it's expressed in a way that can do damage because it's right. out of control right? right right so so i think i think it is about that self-awareness is is coming to the sense that i'm having this experience of anger for a reason and personalizing that 
not not saying well it's because of this or that going on outside of me but saying okay uh, you know i didn't um i went to someone I, this is just the example that came up. i went to someone's wedding instead of going to uh, <laughs> i don't know instead of going on a camping trip right which because yeah right because going to the wedding that's what people want you to do right, you know right. there's it's a formal deal and gosh i'd be a horrible person if i didn't go to that right. wedding right right okay go 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 uh, but on the other hand, my, you know, soul wanted me to go and be in the woods. example for men what i've witnessed at midlife is i've seen a lot of men let their wives hold on to their emotional stuff like mm -hmm. in other words their relationship capacity so the wife is managing the relationship with the kids right or with these with the parents even bizarrely um or with the friends the, the and and it's like a, an almost unconscious um inability and it is unconscious to say hey and so it takes the strength on too because there is almost a vested interest in a relationship sometimes for someone to say hey i can do this and then you know that's how people get hooked right but the real appropriate thing would be to the wife to say no it's your turn to talk to the ch your children directly don't go through me or it's you know you need to do this and often i see that that is one of the big things i see with men that the they haven't lived out their emotional um connection so well and so they have let someone carry and often choose women that will do that for them, by the way. It's almost like an unconscious um, choice for that, for just, I don't want to hold this. So somebody else can hold it. And and similarly, women will let the the uh, the, the men figure everything out, right? Okay, I guess you, you go almost unconscious and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about that. You do it. Um, now, it can be also, by the way, it, it's not only women and men. I've, it can definitely happen that in the opposite, some men are very relational and can be much more relational than their partner and can be doing the same thing, right? Be the one mm -hmm. that communicates with the child. But I've seen this as one of the patterns that, that comes up. I don't know if you've seen other patterns where you're looking and go, hmm, uh, this isn't progressing to a point where the individual is really taking ownership. And, and I bring the emotional thing because I do think that's one thing men in general or if you are a woman and you are anybody, it doesn't matter what's, what gender, if you are not holding the emotional part for yourself and you're letting someone else carry it, that is one of the midlife things you're going to have to figure out. Just, just like if you're not holding that active part, right? You can't let somebody make the decisions for you all the time. At some point, you've got to step up. And that can be held. It's not a, a question of man or woman or whatever. It, it is really a question of what right. kind of character you are and, and what kind of a, a, a connections you've made. So does that make sense? Yeah, makes complete sense. I think that's more common. <clears throat> I think that's very, very common. Yeah. I, I think, um, just, but especially in marriages. Yeah, well, yeah, um, <laughs> that's why I mentioned it. Uh, well, 
because <laughs> I've seen a lot of it. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is not good. Well, and then you have two people, you know, people that get married are generally, generally mm -hmm. close to the same age. Right. And, and so things may get kind of messy in the marriage because then you have, by the time midlife, there is a shift. And so maybe couples start examining these things, mm -hmm. you know, if they're doing it consciously, but if you're not, uh, it can get real messy. Um, there really, I don't think are communities for, I said, I don't want to sound like, uh, no, it's so uh, no, I think you're pointing out what Robert Blind and Martin Schock, yeah, said, a lot it, of, there's not a healthy environment for men. Really, there really right. is. So, and men are also encouraged to, you know, be the, you know, stand on their own two feet, pull yeah. themselves up by their bo yeah. bootstraps. And they, it's a, it's, you know, they're encouraged to isolate, really, yeah. to, to do healthy. things on their own. I mean, that is the American myth in a yeah. nutshell. Right. And when, um, yeah. I'm thinking of Gabor Mate's uh, work and how he talks about how much addiction is linked to this isolation, this feeling that you're not connected to anything. Um, and I, you know, there is, um, yeah, there is. In, in, I have a friend that's a psychology professor, and he used to tell this story about um, uh, done with laboratory rats, cocaine. Mm. Uh, oh, yes. You had two cage. You had two cages. Yeah. And uh, one of the cages, both cages, had a water drip with cocaine. In one cage, you had a community of rats. In another cage, you had an isolated rat. And guess when? Guess where the addiction came out in that? Yeah, it came well, out. Yeah. The lonely rat, right? The lonely rat, yeah. yeah and, and, and that yeah. just tells us how important human connection is yeah, and how yeah. we are, uh, how that is needed. The, the thing about the shadow that is so interesting, <clears throat> because when people talk about it, they often talk about it in a sense, like, I don't know, I get the sense of doom and the sheer... Yeah this fearful well, thing and and it can be it can be, but I mean, yeah i'm just laughing no i'm just going to say look at look at the examples in the popular culture of dr jackal mr hyde i mean the, you get the from very early on you get this idea that if you let that other part of yourself out it will run down the street and start killing people so of course you're like you're going to go walk around completely coward saying no way i'm not letting that part out uh, no matter what. So I can understand why, because there's only been that side. So mm -hmm. is there a better side to the shadow that will release us all from our misery? Well, yeah, because there's potential. Well, yeah, that's that it. You, right? you have, you have to, <laughs> yeah. you have to understand that what the shadow really is, is potential. Now that can be now, again, <clears throat> that comes down to an individual understanding what that potential is and that potential um, is scariest when I, I think an individual doesn't understand, has less of an understanding or is less conscious, less aware that actually these things we fear are there to help us, help bring us to ourselves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and that may be the first step is facing that fear right. um, because we all have it and we all know there is something that I, I do think, I do think that inherently people have a fear. There's something that they want to live out. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but it's big. How. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's it. So let's be practical because I love the practical part. So yeah, a person A, 
how do I how do I know what clues do I get? I mean, I think as Jungians, the first one dreams, right? They often are the ones that are pointing us if you pay attention to things that are not functioning, right? If you're willing to listen and and engage and not be literal about it and maybe just follow the feeling and the emotion. What are some other ways people can become or get in touch with their shadow side to, or what needs to be done? Let's talk about a directive that's definitely about retrieving parts of themselves that are in exile. What, what's what's other ways you can think of? Like therapy, maybe? Jungian analysis, that kind of thing? Sure. Play. Yes, I think play is so, so central to everything. It's it's but I think creatives get this, and I think everybody thinks you can't play if you're 20, or no. they have this weird mistaken idea of what play means, which is a bit right. weird. Um, but the idea of play just means be engaged in something so you are so absorbed that the world disappears. That's the way I look at play. Right. How so do you define play it? Could, play could be numerate play could be a very stimulating conversation. Yeah, um, absolutely. Play could be you know, I'm having a discussion about a book or play could be fishing, really. <laughs> well, um, I, again, it's anything where you lose bird watching, anything that you lose your connection to, or you lose yourself, right? You lose your sense of time, I think is a place where play happens. Because I know when you're probably doing songwriting or singing or whatever, you are lost in that. Just like when I'm writing and I'm really in that mode, I don't know what time it is. And then I just look up and I realize, oh my God, the whole afternoon's gone by. So I know that that's play. Well, athletes have this experience all the time. The yes, ones flow. that are, yes, the flow. The connection uh, to it, yeah. And of course, we can't be athletes our whole lives. So we we have to- Well, you, you could know. be an athlete in a different way. You know, it's sure. a matter of adjusting the 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 time of life to whatever mm -hmm. the, the form that it takes, right? But I mean, the movement of the body, I think a, a thing that's talked about more and I've personally, my own experience is body work is a great way to connect to the- to a part of yourself that maybe isn't like the body really is one thing that's in super exile. People are literally afraid of their bodies. And that's why they're going around trying to control other people's bodies and other people's sexuality, because they are so uncomfortable with their own damn body. And all you want to say is, can you find a way to connect? So you stop torturing others with your shadow body issues. I, I just, so that's one of the big ones. What would yeah. be an example of a person connecting to their body? Because some people might hear this and think, well, I'm yeah. going to do bodybuilding. No, no. Well, I mean, listen, if you do bodybuilding consciously, then that's fine. But people don't do bodybuilding consciously. They do it to look as most people do it just to look a certain way. And because Joe Rogan told them to do it or somebody out in the popular culture, they're not doing it for, for you know, I'm going to be conscious now and lift this, this weight very slowly and really feel the body. When I say body work, I think more any modality that connects you to the body inside. And so body work doesn't necessarily imply movement. It implies your ability to connect to something in, to, your, to your whole emotional inner self. And it is so hard to explain to people <laughs> because what you're saying is you've got to shut the mind off and you've got to go inside and you've got to feel whatever comes up. And first, most people don't know how to shut off their mind. That's painful and difficult. And B, it's a hard thing to know unless you've experienced it. You sat and you did. Now, some things help with that you know there's all sorts of therapies that that people go to or, well, you know that, that will connect them to it and you know yoga has there's a big long tradition of uh yoga being part of this but the, the point is that your body work to me the one of the stuff i've done anyway has shut my mind off enough that i can listen to what's going on inside and what i've discovered is that there's an entire universe that i had been ignoring and that that may be more real than what what my mind creates for me as a story about who i am 
And it is amazing that once you connect to that, you stop obsessing about other people's stuff. Like I, I can't even explain it. It just isn't relevant. And you also see that a lot of what's happening is people are not doing making that connection. And so they're behaving from what seems almost illogical, but it's because the connection hasn't been established. So they don't even know what their body wants. And when I say body again, I'm thinking of body in a holistic sense. It includes the whole emotional body as well, right? And there's a lot of pain in there. And that's why people don't want to connect to it because it's about a lot, a lot better doing weightlifting because when you do that, you feel the pain, but you don't really have to feel the internal pain, which I think is a hell of a lot harder than any external or whatever body pain you will feel by working out. Um, so it's completely different. And this has that, has this made sense or does it sound, still sound yes, kind of nebulous? It, I think, I think it's clear, much clearer. Uh, music can certainly do that for people. For sure. Um, yeah. I, I know people that they listen to music to help them cry. Yeah. Well, um, it does. It helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Uh, that, that brings, that brings things up to the surface. Yeah. Um, it, it really, it really does have that power, but no, stories you, I as think well. stories. Uh, this is why people go to the movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> so exactly. they, can, they can live like vicariously yeah. and then get really ticked off if something doesn't meet their expectations. But the point is you are going in there to connect to some part of yourself, right? That is really what mm -hmm. you're doing. Uh, that's what actually theater used to do in, in the traditional, in the ancient world. It was always your way to be able to, to process. In, in in opera, you know, I think it's funny. I, you know, you think of, um, I don't know. I don't know if this was true or not, but okay. it, there, there was the the movie that was made uh, called The Untouchables about mm -hmm. uh, Al Capone, and you know, imagine Al, Camo, Al Capone sitting in an opera crying. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can totally I, imagine it. I mean, this right. is this, yeah, because that's the way you get things out. And uh, probably he loved Italian opera. I'm pretty sure. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, very emotional and over the top. But I mean, yeah. uh, hey, this was Hitler's obsession with Wagner too. Because Wagner was able to channel for the for a very intellectual country like Germany, it's often been uh, well in France, I think was or maybe Jung, uh, was able to channel the feeling state, which was very inferior. It had gone sort of missing. So you went to the opera house, you got taken in by the strings, which in Wagner are ridiculous. They take you and they kind of carry you right to the other side of the world, and yeah, you get lost in that. But but in doing that, you do connect to a part of yourself that maybe is an exile most most times. But I wonder, though, I mean, that's a catharsis, right? Does that actually change you? Does that actually allow you? Because, the, you know, the, the, as someone said, the, 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 you know, Hitler, the vegetarian, the opera lover would go, would still put, you know, try to destroy an entire race. So, right, you know, it doesn't right. it doesn't really. And, and we're, go, we're back to we're going to kind of circle back. We're back to does this make yes. a better person? <laughs> I know. Right. But right. you would think that that is a level of unconsciousness, which is so ridiculous that you know, he certainly was not accessing or resolving his shadow side. He was just split, you know, and he mm -hmm. happened to have a captivate, like, just like we see today, he had enough people who were equally split and resonating to that, to that note. And so, Hey, you, you get a complete tragedy and you're seeing this recreated in so many different ways in so many different places, but it didn't really resolve the note. Like it didn't really change, which is what I'm hoping that shadow work does uh, for the individual. Right. Uh, it kind of reminds me, I mean, cathar catharsis itself, if there's um, a catharsis is good. I mean, I don't mean to, but I don't know if that's enough. No, no, um, I don't think it is. I mean, it's good because it processes emotion, 
Yeah, but it doesn't, no, it doesn't change the the general outlook. I, I You know, I hate to say it. I really hate to say it because people often accuse me uh, of being a little bit on the, on the um, even though I'm, you know, generally quite a happy person, but on, on the um, too serious side, when I say that, I do think that's why the Greeks thought the suffering was the fast, fast road to, to mm -hmm. anything because you, you're trapped with suffering. There's no way out. You can try to spin it. You can, the point is it's there and you have to face it. And this is maybe why from Aeschylus on, you're getting that repetition as a motif. Suffering is the way that changes you because, and, and in some cases it doesn't change you, but if you're going to change, that's actually probably the fastest path. I can't think of any other way. But that doesn't mean you... Okay. I'm not saying so, you go be a masochist and, and, and I'm not saying that, Jake, come on. No, 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 no. I'm not okay. saying, hey, go out there, just, let's uh, create some drama. No, no, no. I'm saying that I think that if there is a value to suffering and look, you know what? We all suffer something. We've all lost relationships. We've all mm -hmm. lost people we love. We all, I mean, tragedy, uh, we've lost jobs. We've, we've been humiliated. You know, Terrence again, nothing human is alien to me is James, uh, not James, Jim Hollis always likes to quote, the fact is you are going to suffer. And I think the only way you can, mm -hmm. you can maybe say, okay, well, the one thing about it is it, it does force you out of whatever complacent, um, you know, mechanical mode you've been in because you can't pain is really difficult. And that's the worst kind of pain in my experience. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a doorway. Yeah. So can you um, think of any other doorways? I mean, I think the confrontation with death is a really big one. And I think that's mm -hmm. the key to the midlife story, but it can happen. I mean, today, midlife, you know, people are thinking they're in the midlife at 65, which is weird, but the idea that you can actually, you just become really aware that there's limited time and that if there's limited time, then something has to go because you cannot live that life anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And so that makes, allows people to take radical steps that they may have not made before because, you know, you're 35, you got a lot of time not a problem, but then you get to a certain age and you realize, no, I don't have a lot of time and I would like to do something with my life that is more authentically me, right? time suffering anybody anything else confrontation with others yeah that could lead to suffering but yeah the confrontation with the other with the with the other people in oh i think well, there's another one wait death of parents often is another doorway by the way what i meant by confrontation uh confrontation with others i i think that provides a window if you allow it again it comes down to the individual's attitude but a confrontation with a, with another where you you know lose yourself in a moment and feel you know you can't help but feel ashamed so when you're dealing with when you're dealing with that we have these like i think another thing that sometimes happens is we're often told, you know, we shouldn't feel shame or guilt about, you know, I, I hear that. I hear those messages, but, but I mean, yes and no, again, 
there are things that that, that shame and guilt can serve a purpose. It, oh, sure. it can. Yeah, it, it's those a are vo- it, it's a it's a it's a voice to me. That doesn't mean we get stuck in it, but it does. It yes, it is corrective, like you said. I think sometimes it's used. That's I think why I read somewhere that Southern cultures, like Spanish culture, are very good at shaming, and Northern cultures are very good at guilt. And I think both are used often in families to manipulate people. And I think this is mm-hmm. why why it's it can be seen as a bit. But yes, yeah, sometimes if like to think contrition is what you're talking about like let's say you do get into horrible right. with someone and right. just the feeling of enough of like what happened and and sorrow for like what you did um and so i, I think it's less loaded that's all the, those words yes are, it is less yes yeah. contrition is a much better word yeah. right. but you have to be aware to be contrite yeah that's true <laughs> and not think hey you deserved it I know. And okay, so let's go back. I mean, you can, we could talk about this for hours and still not. I, I think going back to it, the re, let, let's, let's, you know, summarize. Shadow work is finding the parts of yourself that are in exile and that you've not allowed to express. And there was a quote I sent you and I th- I found it yes. old, in a very strange book, oh. by the way, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it right now. Um, it's, uh, it's uh, from a book called The Moonlit Path, Reflections on the Dark Feminine. It's not a strange book. It's a great book, actually. I'm confusing it with something else. Anyway, here's the quote. Darkness is the most direct metaphor for what we have not yet dared to think or what we are afraid to feel. It is the color that the soul uses to paint our unconscious yearnings. I just love that quote. Quote, because um, uh, darkness, of course, refers to that shadow side, whatever's in shadow, right? So that you can't, you're not allowing yourself. And it's just like half your life is not lived. And if it's unlived, mm-hmm. that unlived life, um, can torture you because first of all, you're going to find someone to live it out for you. And mm-hmm. with people who have children, the children often become, and, and mm-hmm. actually something that, uh, you know, Jung said, and, and James Hollis never ceases to repeat, which is frightening is that they'll live your unconscious unlived life. So the part that you're not even aware that you didn't, uh, mm-hmm. so that's scary in itself. Uh, but the other thing is like, that's what you're here for. And we're privileged in where we live that you can get to an older age and you can take painting classes or you can start exploring parts of yourself in, in ways that you couldn't before, right? I think this is where it gets mixed up. Right? Let's see what you think. If, and because I have a group and we talk about this a lot and we call it the third act, going into the third act of life, right? And uh, it's the idea that you have to be rewarded for it. Can, mm-hmm. can you actually do something, write a novel, write a song, and not feel that, and can you do it in the absence of any applause? Not even one, not even one person recognizing that it's worth anything. Could you do it for the sheer love of expression? And I think people are conditioned up to that third act or the midlife or whatever, all this like post-midlife, any, any point to that, that if they're not published, that they're not rewarded, that if somebody isn't applauding their efforts, somehow it doesn't matter. And to me, I've always said, if you could connect to one person in your entire life, you probably done more than a lot of people will ever do and that means you've got to relinquish what this society says is worthy and uh and because we know of plenty of artists who are not appreciated at all in their lifetimes and they're now mm. you know james joyce being a great example right as a writer uh but but there's tons uh there's so many that it's ridiculous and yet they continued doing it because it was who they were. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things is just to tell people, can you do this in the absence of any approval? In fact, people might laugh at you. They may say, that's crazy. I can't believe, can you still go ahead? And that really is what takes courage. Um, and and what's what holds people back. They won't do it because they they feel that they can't. They have no permission. 
And if somebody doesn't say immediately, oh, it's really great. I see this on writers uh, forums, by the way, which is why I would never join a writer forum, writers forum, is that they, they need to be validated at all times. It's like, okay, listen, why are you writing? <laughs> what, what's the reason? Right. Because, you know, even if you do get published, there's no guarantee anybody's going to read it. So can you do it in the absence? Can you do it because something is transformative about that process? Georgia O'Keefe said she painted because she felt it was necessary. Yeah. Very, that's and it. that's the way that I look at it. It's a necessity yeah. because if I didn't write or I didn't, you know, use whatever creative outlet, um, that energy is going to, it, and again, it goes back, the, the energy is going to um, be a problem in some way. It's that old scripture from Gospel of Thomas. Is that what you're thinking of? Gospel of Thomas. Over. You do not bring what's uh, what is it? You do not bring forth what is within you. With within what? you. What's the last part? It's going to bother both of us because we, okay. I see it. <laughs> well, basically, if you if basically, I'll summarize. Okay. Um, what you don't what, that which you do not bring forth that's within you has the capacity to destroy you. Yeah, yeah, that's basically that's basically the message. So you and by the way, and it does. Well, how alive do you want to be? And being alive sometimes actually means you need to bring some light into those parts and, and light up some parts of your um, experience that are a bit scary. And that's the other thing. I think Stevens Pressfield tells us to writers. He says, if you do not fear what you are writing, if it doesn't make you afraid, don't, don't write it. It's not worth it. Because fear has got it. I, I love actually mentioned Georgia O'Keefe. I just bumped into a, um, a quote she said about how she's felt fear every day of her life, but it never stopped her from doing what she needed to do. That is the way to like, take life on. You feel it, mm -hmm. you do it anyway, right? What else are you going to mm -hmm. do? Uh, or you, you know, or you hide in a corner and don't live life. So thanks for listening. The music you've been listening to is from Jay Rettlesberger's album, Harvesting James. You can find his music at the links provided in the show notes. There, you'll also find links to anything else we've mentioned during our conversation. Thanks also to our producer, Andrew Graham. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating so others will find us as well. For now, until next time.